when a lot of people ask me, how do you become a photographer? How do you? I always say, put the camera down. Put the camera down and read and watch and learn about those whose shoulders we stand on because it will help you understand the point of view that you're supposed to have. Episode 80 with photographer and activist Misan Harriman. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Calmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of Black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Hello, friends. Welcome to another thought-provoking episode of the Institute of Black Imagination podcast. It's Dario, and today we have a truly inspiring conversation that delves into the power of self-discovery, resilience, and the transformational journey of one extraordinary individual. And that individual is none other than Misan Harriman, a name that has become synonymous with the art of storytelling through the lens. The first brother to shoot a cover for British Vogue in its 104-year history, Misan's incredible journey from self-doubt to becoming a global voice of the moment is a testament to the indomitable human spirit. His iconic protest images became a voice for the voiceless, igniting a conversation that asks, why is ending racism still a debate? Hailing from Calabar, the capital city of Cross River State in Nigeria, Misan was raised in England, yet didn't formally begin his photographic career until the age of 40. Gifted a camera from his wife, who recognized his passion for the image, Misan taught himself the ins and outs of image making. A burgeoning portraitist, it was his protest images during the 2020 Global Reckoning for Black Lives that caught the attention of British Vogue editor-in-chief Edward Inningful, and the rest, as they say, is history. Now an acclaimed celebrity portraitist and curator of the Tezos Foundation Digital Art Gallery, Misan is expanding his eye for activism across various mediums. And in today's conversation, we'll explore the pivotal moments that led him to embrace his passion for photography, the power of lifelong learning, the future of NFTs, and the profound impact of his work during a tumultuous time in history. Be sure to share some of your thoughts on today's episode with us over on Instagram and Twitter, or X, at Black Imagination. And if you want to stay updated on all of our latest news, exclusive content, including our upcoming physical location, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter linked down in the show notes. And this and more content is also over on IBI Digital at blackimagination.com. And as a nonprofit, our existence relies on you, dear listener. If you love what we do and want to support the show, there's also a support link in the show notes. But first, let's rewind to the beginning. How did Misan go from doubting his creative potential to becoming a force for change through photography? Double tap on that moment and listen closely as Misan shares his incredible story. Misan? Misan, yeah. Misan. Yeah. 
Missan. M- Missan Harryman. Missan. Yeah. Missan Harryman. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. So excited for this interview. I've made it. I'm here. I've made it. I've been seen. I, <laughs> I, I, I feel so honored. Thank you. Of course, of course. Uh, so to start, who would you like to dedicate today's conversation to? I would like to dedicate today's conversation to my wife, always, Camilla, my wife. Mm. Okay, Camilla, this one is for you. So to just hop right in, what's exciting you right now? Right now, you know, I'm I'm excited about the borderless reach of creatives and how we're beginning to understand that uh, we can bypass a lot of the media landscapes um, that we've needed to build our brands on. Um, Just like you today. I mean, I, I came across you because of your association with some huge brands, but you're building your own and it matters. And, you know, that makes me excited. The idea that we're speaking uh, together and our paths have crossed in this way feels uh, feels really, really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like, you know, we'll talk a bit more about digital later. Um, but I think, you know, this conversation and I think what you mentioned is one of the major benefits of the digital space, right? Mm-hmm. It allows us to be in conversation directly Mm -hmm. without having to go through these kind of centralized channels, Mm -hmm. right? Then that can control the communication. Um, And kind of coming back to the beginning, what do you need from today's conversation? I need to share my story with you with the hope that those that listen understand that it's it's never too late to take the road less traveled mm. it's uh it's never too late to listen to your inner voice and form yourself in the way that society doesn't always tell you to um and understand that the tools to create are available to you if you listen to yourself. And, 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 and I think that's what I want to put out there um, in telling my story, that you know, there are a lot of people that are probably listening to this that are going through the same shit I go through all the time, which is self-doubt, imposter syndrome, sometimes a lack of self-love. And um, I want them to, to know that I'm someone that has those scars um, and I wear them with pride, and it's taken me to some to some extraordinary places. Hmm. I mean, let's let's double tap on that. Let's double tap <laughs> on this road less traveled. So there's something we share in common, um, besides both being image makers, um, but also both kind of making history as the first black photographers to shoot major covers for major magazines, for yourself, uh, British Vogue, and for myself, Vanity Fair. (laughs) Vanity Um, Fair, god damn, love it. 
<laughs> I love it. I just, I just, oh, I'm still, I'm still, yes, wow, amazing, man. That is not a small thing. Don't, it's, it's, wow. Anyway, sorry, I became a fan <laughs> instead of a person being interviewed. <laughs> it was my favorite magazine growing up, by far, Vanity Fair, because I, I, I love Vogue, but Vanity Fair, um, I loved um, just properly reading. I think I looked at Vogue and I read Vanity Fair. Do you see what I mean? Mm. Um, I loved all these society mm-hmm, pieces mm-hmm. and the editorial stories that they had, um, you know, and um, it's nice that um, you've smashed that door open, right? It, it really is nice. So, uh, sorry, I, I'll shut up. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a thing. No, no, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, but you came into photography, like, starting at 40, if I'm yes. not correct. Yes, if, yeah, if yeah. I'm correct. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. are. So, so, so your, your wife bought you a camera mm-hmm. um, because, you know, in reading interviews, she was just like, okay, stop talking about it. Like, here, like, I'm going to put this in your hand. Um, double tap on that moment. And what does it mean to listen to that inner voice? I mean, look, when, when we started dating, she would just see me with photo books everywhere, everywhere. I'd be talking about, you know, Gordon Parks, Eve Arnold, Sally Mann, David LaChapelle, showing her YouTube clips, you know, talking about lights, showing her clips in movies. And, and she was like, all you talk about is imagery. And, you know, why are you, why are you so scared to, to, to maybe create imagery? And I guess for a while I wasn't brave enough to to tell her that I I, I didn't think that you know my mind <laughs> would amount to much because um, the conventional methods mm. of valid, validating yourself, i.e., education, uh, or even at home, they never there was no mirror of potential greatness or even any ability because I I was um, I am neurodiverse. I'm dyslexic and. Um, I really struggled to concentrate at all in class. My results at school weren't very good. So I grew up just thinking I I was um, a below average human in terms of um, mm. Uh, mm. being a potential creative, but I loved creativity. But she um, didn't see that. And, and it takes someone to love the parts of the yourself that you're ashamed of. It takes someone to see mm. the the rooms that you've, you've thrown away the keys off, right? And and walk into those rooms with you and 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 not look at you with shameful or judgeful eyes to make you re- realize that it's it's okay to try and have a point of view. And that was the beginning of the process on my 40th birthday when we went to India and she bought she bought me a a little uh camera and that that was the beginning of everything changing. Everything and what was that, what was, do you remember like what that feeling was when you touched that camera and began to express yourself through it? Like what was that, inter- what did that internal yes feel like? <laughs> well, look, let me be real with you. I took a lot of shit photographs. They were awful. Overexposed. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know what I was doing, man. I was, I was walking around the most beautiful parts of India, some of the most beautiful parts of the world. And I was taking horrible you know pictures you can't fix you can't fix it i mean it was just all just awful Mm. and um but 
the beauty of that is that I could go on to YouTube and start trying to figure out what I was doing wrong without fear of judgment from any human. Mm. You know, it's it, it was amazing, you know, figuring out aperture, ISO, shutter speed, figuring out um, just how to hold and feel comfortable um, around a camera, understanding lenses, composition. That all came from me failing and failing and failing until I didn't anymore. Mm. And that's a great privilege of this digital age that we're in. If I had gone to some fancy art school to study photography, I would have been out within a week. I just would have. I wouldn't have been able to concentrate. My pictures would have been terrible. The teachers would have wondered why I was there. And I would just be another man that could have done something really special with this seemingly inanimate object or the camera that put it down. Mm. I, you know, it's so interesting. Prior, right before this interview, myself and the team, we were talking about this idea of lifelong education. Um, for some reason, we, at least in America, have this cultural under feeling that once you graduate, you know, maybe university, that's where everything stops, right? Like, mm -hmm. and everything is geared towards that demographic. But what does it mean to have a life? type of school? What does it mean to provide access to information for people who are curious about things throughout their life and want to learn? And so I sit here on the other side, seeing like the power of technology, right? And the power of people sharing knowledge, right? Because because I'm sure it wasn't a university professor that was on YouTube. No. Nah. <laughs> teaching the ins and outs of photography, but it was someone who who had a skill and wanted to share it, and there was somebody out there willing to learn it. And so, you know, for me, that's an, a, a beautiful example of how we can all be lifelong learners and then to then see your career, right? Five, six years afterwards, just, poo, like, yeah. catapult. I believe there was one interview um, that Sotheby's had, and you spoke about this shoot, uh, with British Vogue, um, and you spoke about, you know, you said, it's true that an image can say a thousand words, and it's an incredible honor that my photograph has been perceived by many as the voice of the moment. So, you know, this is happening as we're in a pandemic and there are worldwide protests happening around the killing of George Floyd. Um, the question you photographed, you say, is why is ending racism a debate. One, what does it mean to be one of the voices of this moment? Um, my brother, I, I, I don't know what you were going through at that time, but I can tell you that I was not doing so well. Um, mm. I think a lot of the traumas that we as Black people have had to endure for generations. And I, and I think even some of the, the traumas that our parents and ancestors have inadvertently handed down to us. I believe that when we saw this man that could, could have been my brother or my father in his lying in his own piss, asking for his mother before he left his earth, I think when we watched that, 
And remember that we watched that when all of us were locked up at home. It was the mm-hmm. perfect storm of 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 self reflection and being forced to not look away. And in doing so, I can speak for myself now that a lot of the traumas of my life, I lost control of how to control them. And they just climbed out of mm. me. And at the same time, my life was changing in a way that I could never comprehend. So when I shot those protest images, I was shooting my own trauma, number one, which I think is why mm-hmm. there is something in those images that just the world the world needed. And it was the son mm-hmm. of Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King III, that saw those images and t- posted them on his Twitter. And those images were then, mm. you know, a, a lot of celebrities shared them. And of course, Edward Enningful um, saw them, shared a few himself. And then within, a, I don't know, a week or two of these images is going viral a- anyway, I get, a, <laughs> I, get, I get an email saying, that, do you want to have a Zoom with the, the, um, the editor-in-chief of British Vogue? And I was like, sure. I mean, um, no <laughs> clue. Like, I mean, no clue what's going on. And I remember all of the team kind of popped up on the Zoom. And then at the end, Edward, and you know, you know, Edward, he's, he's, he's super chill. And he's just like, hey, Miss Sat, I love your work. Blah, 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 blah. So we're going to give you the cover. And I was just like, the cover? <laughs> and he's like, you know, I, you know, I hope you can shoot fast because there's like a lot of people. And I, I, I honestly, I've said this in interviews before. For the rest of that interview, I barely said anything. Interview sorry, Zoom call, because I was focused on not fainting. Because I I, I began, uh, it, 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 the realization of, I think this man is giving me the cover of Vogue, was was <laughs> was kicking in. And and I, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't process a damn thing, you know. And um, they probably thought, the Vogue team probably thought, God, Miss Anne's playing it cool, but I wasn't. I was literally about to collapse. Um, and, and... <laughs> And and the beauty of it, when when we went up to shoot Marcus Rashford and Adwa Aboa, um we are all black people, you know? I was shooting a black woman and a mm. black man. And there was an unspoken language between all of us that was mm. a protective layer. We we knew mm. that we, we were on 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 the verge of something special. And it was what was unsaid between us that I think Mm. was even more powerful. There were looks and nods. And if I looked a little bit nervous, Mm -hmm. one one of them would look at me a certain way. If they looked nervous, and it was a waltz of creativity of the likes that happens maybe once or twice in your whole life. And, um, that was what is, those are the results people saw on the cover. Wow. That's, um, You know, that's so beautiful. I think there's so, so many things, right? Like one, what does it mean to have people of color in decision-making places, you know, in this moment? I mean, I've been shooting for a while. I remember there was a time not very long ago, because I'm not, you know, that old, uh, where I couldn't even have black models in my book, right? Like that was not too long ago. That was in my lifetime. And I, 
you know, I've only been shooting for around 13 years. Um, so I think that's incredibly powerful. But I think also, you know, your work in that moment, you know, was was about being a voice of a moment, but also this one of um, protest um, and speaking up in places of power, which is something that is a thread throughout many of the hats that you wear. There, mm. I, 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 I see this real sense, this real desire to, one, reflect back to individuals mm. their own beauty and their yeah. own power, yeah. but also to speak truth to powers, right? And to make space. I feel, I see so much of your storytelling is about space making. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is this, you know, but but how do you approach, you know, social issues and human rights while honing in on the art of storytelling? Thank you. It's a great question. I, I think if, if this, this, me becoming whoever I am, happened to me 20 years ago, when I was 25, <laughs> I, it would have been a disaster because I, I would have been running towards all the shiny things. You know, I would have been mm. hu- hustling as, as, as hard as I can to make sure I get as many covers as possible, to make sure I'm shooting as many, you know, celebutants as possible. I would be thinking very little about the importance of the platform, the people that look to to where I point my lens to. But because this happened to me mm. in my 40s, where life had beaten me up enough to understand that if mm. anything special ever happened to me, I have to use that platform. As I rise, I must lift, right? As I open doors, I must mm. pull, other, mm. pull others into. Just like Edward. Ed- Edward didn't have to pick me, a then, a then unknown photographer, at least in the fashion game, completely unknown, to shoot such a, such a huge cover as far as Vogue and the, and, and the fashion industry is concerned in such a year, the year the world changed forever. I shot September. It's a huge risk, huge risk on Edward's um, head and shoulders, really. And it's, you know, we've, we've, we've spoken many times and I, I, don't, I don't even mince my, I was like, you changed my life, man. You know, um, and and look, there were other editors of British Vogue before him. You know that were there. I mean, the the one, the lady before Alexandra Shawman, I think she was there for twenty. I don't know, twenty over twenty years. There have been black men and women holding the camera for over eighty years, maybe ninety. In fact, I shot James Barner, who's ninety four years old. Dude's, dude's been holding a camera for 70-something years. My point is, you, Dario, and me are not the first black men to take a picture. Yet, <laughs> <laughs> we were the first to have our work mm-hmm. be put in such important magazines. It always breaks my heart that Gordon Parks never got a Vogue cover. He shot for Vogue. He did some beautiful mm-hmm. work for Vogue. But as you know, our brother Tyler, 2018 with Beyonce, was the first mm-hmm. for American Vogue. Mm-hmm. Can you mm-hmm. imagine a whole Gordon Parks wasn't seen? So it took mm. um, a, an editor who had a similar lived experience 
to the, the, the unseen, the othered, to feel comfortable in giving me a shot. Um, and I hope that's mm -hmm. a lesson to other editors who maybe have had a very singular experience to cast their net a bit wider, to take a very minimal risk by giving somebody else a shot beyond the kind of nepotistic, nepotistic world that so much of film and fashion and music uh, is all about. Yeah, and, and to double tap on like the social issues, right? Like, you know, how do you approach them? Like, what, like how, what is the mental space? How do you scan, right? Like, what is that process of translating this desire <clears throat> into, you know, your photography or just this act of storytelling? Well, you know, I haven't, I haven't got a diagnosis, but my, my wife and other friends, there's this term people are using saying HSP, um, highly sensitive person. And, and it's, it's linked to mm. AD, ADHD and uh, the autism spectrum, but it's, 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 um, I, I, I really struggle seeing something that's wrong and doing nothing about it. I, I it, like it, 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 mm. it, it, it affects me in a way that is almost personal. So to be able to do something about it with my camera is just a no-brainer, mm -hmm. right? So I, in this age of um, divisive politics and everyone has a strong point of view about something, um, I find it fascinating that the issues that I care about um, are considered, you know, um, kind of, wow, Miss Anne, you're really pushing the envelope. And I'm like, not really. I care about the rights of black people, brown people, uh, migrants. I care about the rights of women. I care about the gay and trans community. I care about climate change. I care about children being protected. Listen, mm. I think that's quite a normal range of things to have a concern, a, a going concern for. Um, and now I can use my lens to, to be their sword and their shield. And mm. that, that will always be the most important thing that I ever do with a camera. I can do huge brand campaigns or be shooting, I don't know, Angelina Jolie on a roof of a hotel. And, but you better know that that year I shot, you know, Angie, I also went to Somalia with Save the Children to cover the famine of which millions of black babies are on the verge of death. Mm. That just has to be what I do with this great privilege of having a platform where people look to my images. If my images force you to reevaluate what you can do with the time that you have, then that's the greatest thing I've ever achieved in my life. I love that. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just like, no, but look, bro, look, 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 my, my brother, just think about, mm -hmm. I, I remember, you know, I, I didn't know Virgil well, we, you know, we, we met a few times, um, and, and, and I, I never met Ch Chadwick, but when we lost them both in such a short period of time, I, I, you know, I was like, 
you know, what are we going to do with the time? And you, if you look at what those two extraordinary men achieved in the time that they had, mm-hmm. those of us that are still here, those enough of us that understand the peaks and troughs of what life throws at you, we have to do what mm-hmm. we can. And for some people, what we can is raising your kids right, turning up to work. That, that is enough for certain people, depending on what cards have you've been dealt. But if you're in a place where you can force an agenda that can make other people's lives easier, and you don't do it, well, that's on you. Yeah. Yeah. It, as you were speaking, it also made me think about like what it just means to share. And sometimes just sharing is also enough. Because I think back to you watching YouTube videos and how, how someone sharing their knowledge positioned you and allowed you to, you know, become the first black photographer to shoot a cover British Vogue. And lucky that it was someone like you, right? Someone with a larger mission, um, a larger vision for humanity to then open up other avenues. And the catalyst for that was someone just sharing what they knew. And so sometimes it's not always going out and marching in the street. No, 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 no. Sometimes no. it's just sharing, you know, it's, and the it's, power of that. Yeah, it's art, it's culture, it's... um. You know, the, the music I've listened to my whole life has shaped, mm-hmm. you know, which has nothing to do with photography. But if you've, if you've mm-hmm. listened to Sarah Vaughan, if you've listened to, I don't know, Montreux Jazz Festival 1977 or 76, Nina Simone singing yeah, Feelings. <laughs> huh? If you see someone like her at the peak of her powers, ripping out her soul and throwing it at the audience. If you grew up with the soundtracks that I grew up with, whether it's, God, do the right thing, waiting to exhale, above the rim. If you were in the club when you first heard Rump Shaker. If you have that infusion. (laughs) No, but it's true. We had this. We had this, this, this incredible infusion of some of the greatest art. I'm 45 years old, right? Which means I was I was right there when Babyface was at his 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 you know just p- producing soundtracks and albums that were just amazing. When 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 R and B was in the club, they were playing slow jam <laughs> in the club, right? So and you know I I I I, I watched Love Jones just at the right time, and I saw a whole bunch of black people that weren't <laughs> gangbangers, right? Middle-class black people spitting poetry, near long being near long. All of this shapes you in how what you know in the point of view that you want to have. And I would say the same thing um, for the poetry I read, for um, the kind of mother that I had, a Nigerian mother that always made me very proud of my multiculturalism, born in Nigeria, mm-hmm. raised in England. Um, and, and all of those are the pieces in the puzzle. And then when it got to photography, I was able to understand that I, I could look for 
um, people like Monita Sleet Jr., the first black photographer to shoot, to get a Pulitzer, right, for the images of Coretta Scott mm-hmm. King at Martin Luther King's funeral. You know, I was able to to look at photographers like Mo Amin, this amazing, you know, African photographer that had his arm blown off and kept shooting with one arm, you know, just fascinating stories. As much as I was able to love Slim Errands and Cecil Beaton, I, I always knew that there were other people out there with a point of view. And it wasn't only Gordon Parks, right? And and, mm-hmm. I, and I think mm-hmm. kind of studying and reading what I could about those people has really poured into the type of image maker that I I, I hope to to be and to to keep kind of developing with time. Yeah, you you mentioned in an interview that well you describe portraiture as a search for truth. What is that truth you are seeking or wanting to reveal? You know, when I was shooting the protests, it's interesting because I wasn't the only photographer there, right? And I would be in this position with like, I don't know. 10 dudes that were like free, just people with cameras. And then there'll be all the Getty images, professional. And we were all basically in the same places for 90% of the time. But then I would look at the images that I created, um, especially compared to the Getty guys that were shooting and putting it on the wire and, you know, it was all over. And um, they were completely different stories yet we were standing Mm. in the same place and that's when I realized that if you're not intentional before you hold the camera with what you're going to do with it there's no lights there's no there's 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 no ISO or lens or primal zoom that's going to save you from not showing the human condition in its full fidelity. And mm. I th- I think because I was shooting my own trauma, because very quickly people knew who I was, very quickly they knew when I was at a protest, there was a trust with the subject mm. and a responsibility with me who was going to become the custodian of their truth, of their pain, of their hope, and with some people of their allyship and solidarity. But there was a look that I, 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 they would give me before I put my eye to the viewfinder. And the rest is just pure truth. And I'm not sure those Getty <laughs> photographers were, 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 were having that unspoken conversation. Mm. I love this word custodian. Um, because I think in a way, it gets to the heart of what's really going on there, right? It's not uh, one of like passive observation or even like collecting, right? Of mm-hmm. imagery, of faces, of, of spaces. But there's a, there's a responsibility mm-hmm. that you have with someone's image, someone's visage, right? They are lending you mm-hmm. something that is very private and solely theirs. Yes. And we as image makers are custodians of that, of that embodied consciousness, right? And what that means um, at scale um, around the world. 
But I want to kind of circle back because you mentioned, you know, a little bit about the mother. You mentioned a little bit, you know, I want to just like, okay, Misa, right. Okay. We just talked about the last five years, last six years. But he's born in Ghana, grew up in London. Born you in know, Nigeria. You're the child of a Nigerian. Oh, sorry, Definitely wait, in Nigeria. Born in Nigeria, yeah, yeah. grew up in London. Wait, what did I say? Ghana? Yeah, that place, that small outpost. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Nigeria <laughs> Lights. I was talking too fast. <laughs> okay. Um, actually, now I'm scared because <laughs> I just visited Nigeria and I'm glad that you are in London. Um, <laughs> but, like, so your, your father was a businessman mm-hmm. um, and a politician. I know you mentioned your mother. Like, how did the impact of your upbringing um, affect, you know, affect the way in which you embody yourself now? And what was some of the, what was one of the biggest lessons your parents taught you? I mean, I, I think my, in that sense, my background isn't too dissimilar to a lot of um, uh, Nigerian families that had the means to um, send their children abroad. So I, I think we're former British colony, a lot of middle class Nigerians, um, it was a a real thing, and I think it still is today. If I'm being honest, if you have the money to send your your children away to private school in England, and I think there was a huge sense of pride um, from uh, both my parents um, in having their children in you know the the sort of schools where kings and queens and dukes and duchesses go to, right? The reality of that is a black boy <laughs> in the middle of the English countryside in the early 80s. And mm. I mean, you can kind of figure how that went. <laughs> you know, the the uh, amount of... How did it go? Well, I mean, you know, it, it's... When you're young, you code switch and you 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 don't know how to manage trauma so you you tell yourself it's something else but you know mm. when when both teachers and your your colleagues your student friends are making fun of every aspect of what makes you you from how big your lips are to sexualizing you because you are a black man to playing with your hair without your permission like you are in a petting zoo to presuming that we had specific diseases because we had been on holiday back home i could go on all day but as a boy you 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 know you 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 manage it as best you can and i i think um i found safety and solace in uh in those days the video club we would call it so on weekends I'd be allowed to go with a teacher to, 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 you know, kind of the equivalent of blockbuster video. And that was a highlight of my whole experience because I would, I would find, I don't know, stand by me or, uh, uh, you know, the lost boys or Ferris Bueller's day off, whatever it was in those days. And I would be able to just take flight and imagine myself in many other different experiences and I think that was a safe harbor for me. And I quickly became the kid that everyone came to to ask what what film they should watch or what's you know what song they should listen to. And that was the beginning of me learning how to protect myself 
with art, with culture itself. Mm. And it's always been my, you know, the place I go to when all else seems lonely and dark, when all else seems like um, it doesn't see me. Mm. And what are some of those kind of those through lines or those lessons, right? You know, starting in Nigeria, going to, you know, school in London and, you know, working as a photographer now, like what are some of those lessons, right? That your upbringing, your parents that like stick with you, that stay with you, that inform the way you move through the world? I think, you know, if for, for me, I always think about today when, because we had it simpler. I mean, there were very few, you know, there was no internet. There was very few options in how we would spend our time. We weren't staring at screens all the time. So there was a, a much more vivid experience when we would listen to whole albums, you know. I, you know, Bob Marley, Bob Marley legend, when I was a bit older, you know, was was the thing everyone listened to. And it was just no one ever skipped a track. You just listened to the whole album, right? And I I, I look back on the lessons of how I have consumed content. And 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 I think right now, because of the the availability of so much, we, we, we're not able to decide who we are. And we end up following mm. people. We end up looking up to people that tell us who they are. And that's why there's so many, you know, kind of what I call snake oil salesmen, so many grifters, people online that are young people look up to that basically tell young people that they can walk on water. You know, because we're looking for those answers. Whereas I, I had the time, maybe you had the time when you were younger, to maybe watch, you know, Jungle Fever by Spike Lee and make decisions about things in your life. I mean, I don't take drugs because of Gator, played by Samuel L. Jackson. I've never had a spliff in my life. Forget anything else, because I watched that film. And I saw this performance by, I didn't even, Samuel Jackson, it was one of his earliest film roles. And, and he played this crackhead who destroyed his life and also destroyed his parents, played by um, Ozzie Davis and Ruby Dee. And I was like, nah, mm. nah, 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 nah. And, and I don't know if you remember Wesley Snipes, who, who played his brother, looking for him. And they had this crack den called the Taj Mahal. And there's an incredible mm. scene just following him into, into that den. I think there's a CV Wonder. You know, so how, you know how Spike did it. It was just extraordinary filmmaking. And, but what Spike was <sighs> doing was speaking to me as a young boy to say, this shit, there's no upside here. Right? And mm -hmm. we, I'm saying we had the time. These are the lessons. So most of my teachers, if, if I'm just going to be real, were not like, traditional teachers or even uncles, aunties, parents, you know, they, you know, they did the conventional stuff, but the people that like shaped me were in the notes of song, in the, in the pages of books, mm. in the sweet territory of cinema and filmmaking. So much of who I am was there, but we were given a stillness to decode it in a way that is almost impossible today, which is why with so many mm. people I men mentor, I send them films and songs, and it works so well. I send them clips of things to listen, to really listen to, um, and, and, and it helps shape you to decide who you want to be in this life without 
trying to follow someone who has told you what you think you need to hear. Mm. Do you have that playlist somewhere? <laughs> My, yeah, I do. Don't we're worry, gonna, I, 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 I got you. <laughs> no worries. Hey. And I will share with y'all who are listening, if you don't mind, once you send sure. it, I will definitely sure. share it and pass that on. Um, so kind of building up to the present, you know, starting photography at 40, there were a couple of years before that, right? I think mm -hmm. you were working in recruitment. Yeah. Am I correct? Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, it's, yeah. it's the what, same story, like, right? What are it's, some of the learned there? And yeah, how do you pull that forward? You look, the, the truth is, if you're not, you don't have very good degree. I had no degree. I dropped out of university. So what I did was find an industry where personality mattered, right? And the thing about recruitment is that you were dealing with human beings and helping them shape their lives. And I really enjoyed that aspect of it. And I did that for years and was 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 really good at it, you know, really, really good at it. Mm. throughout that time, there was always, if I'm being honest, there was always that whisper in a voice that was saying, this is not your story to tell, Miss Anne Harriman. This is not mm. your story to tell. And um, it, did, it, it, it was, again, you know, until I met Camilla, where um, I, realized, I realized that uh, there was another path for me. Um, but... But what I would say is that um, during lockdown, I had a lot of messages from people who heard my story that were bankers, accountants, doctors, even retired folk. And they all said that they were too scared to take this road less traveled because of the stuff that society enforces on you. What would my wife think? What would my husband think? What would my parents think? What would my lover think? What would my university friends think? How will I pay my mortgage? What if I fail? And, you know, in a lot of interviews, I always like to say that, you know, there's nothing wrong with failure. <laughs> there really isn't. I, like, I, I failed more in my life than I've ever succeeded. There is just no doubt that I failed more in my life than I've ever succeeded. And, you know, I, I really do wear those failures as badges of honor because they've been the paths that I didn't know that I needed to walk to lead me to a place of absolute certainty. Um, and and, and mm. I, I say that because fear... And social programming makes so many people live uh, uh, a shadow of a life that was not written for them. And listen, there are many Gordon Parks, there are many Spike Lees, LeBron Jameses, Teddy Rileys, you name it, there are many of them that drop the tools that would have led them to scale that mountain that seemed insurmountable at the time they first held those specific tools. And I think more of us that are seen as successful have to speak out about this. And we have to speak from a place of vulnerability. You know, you and I can't sit here, but you shot Vanity Fair, I shot Vogue. If we sat here just saying, yeah, we're the shit, 
Yeah, I knew I was going to shoot Vogue. Shit, I'm Miss Anne Harriman. Yeah, yeah, Darian. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of crazy that people actually still speak like that in this age where all of us are going through a mental health crisis, where all of us didn't have an answer mm. to this act of God that was COVID that turned the world upside down. And then after that, we all had to, during that, we observed George Floyd and had to deal with our own inner demons and trauma. And you're going to tell me you, you, you knew it was going to happen. Please. Uh, I'll switch in my Niger accent. I beg, I beg, I beg. Nah, let's just be honest. Let's be honest. You know what, you know what, bro? I was, I was getting money from my fucking parents for groceries in 2020. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Um, you know, obviously working as a photographer and working in events, like all that shit stopped. Dead, um, gone. So I, you know, so I will, I will, I will double tap and say, yeah, bitch, I didn't know either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how could you know? How could you yeah. know? But it's what yeah. the thing is, your whole fucking life, man, Dario, was preparing you for what was coming. And it, it, I always, you know, that th- th- there is a time and a place for you to be ready. And, you know, it happened to both of us. Mm. Two years too yeah, late. Absolutely. Two years too early, five years. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have been the same. Absolutely not. Um, in, the, in, the, in the church tradition, um, the Baptist church tradition, we say he may not come when you want him, but he's right on time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's true though. But you, you mentioned earlier about you know just making friendships, right? Particularly working like in recruitment and just being a people person. Mm. Um, and I know that you are good friends with um, Megan and Harry, um, mm. part of the royal family. Um, and I believe maybe rumored that you introduced them. I, I, I am. Um, or is that, is that apocryphal? Is that some. <laughs> the, the, if you watch the documentary, you'll see who introduced them. It's all in there. But what I would say is that um, they, they are dear friends. I've known Meg for a long, long time. Um, she's a supernova, um, you know, uh, an extraordinarily mm. um, ball of um, wisdom and empathy. Um, she. It's kindness that that really brought us together as friends, right? And um, a love mm. of literature, a love of literature and poetry, and um, I'm I'm very very proud to 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 say that you know she's family to me and her lovely husband, who I've gone to know um, over the years. Are they all very very special people? And I think what I would love to talk about is. Is also the the images I I took of them um, because the, the the first images I took that really went public was during lockdown and I did that virtually. You know, I shot those on an iPad, um, mm. um, which which I've spoken about in the past. But you know, I couldn't get to uh, California and um, still wanted to do the images, so we we figured it out. And virtual shoots are more of a normal thing, but in those days it was quite unusual. And, um, but it goes back to what I say, I said earlier about, it's not about the tool, right? It's about you being the custodian mm-hmm. of somebody's story. 
And that's what I hope I was able to do when I was announcing the, the, the special news um, that they were, they were expecting another child. And it's, it's, it's just another lesson about Which, um, photography um, that when a lot of people ask me, how do you become a photographer? How do you? I always say, put the camera down. Put the camera down and read and watch and learn about those whose shoulders we stand on because it will help you understand the point of view that you're supposed mm -hmm. to have. Yeah, and you know, in bringing them up, I you know just wanted to mention that incredible special relationship, but actually want to expand it right because it's not necessarily about this relationship, but really about the importance of friendship, mm. you know, and trust. Could you speak a bit about the importance of relationships in your life and career, man, um, Edward? planted the seed, uh, put me out there to the world. Um, I remember doing an interview shortly after the Vogue uh, cover went out with Christiane Amanpour, um, someone I'd grown mm -hmm. up, frankly, worshipping. And um, she, she was very kind and had me on CNN, obviously a big, a big global platform. And then it's, you know, it's understanding how the business of relationships work. So as a black man who was a first black man to do what he did, I was of an age to just do the research and understand why agencies and photo editors and um, fashion brands were not hiring people of color to tell stories. And... Because of my, I guess, background maybe in executive search and recruitment, I understand the boardroom. I understand, uh, you know, how um, businesses work. So I, I, I looked at who owns fashion. Mm -hmm. I looked at the ownership structure of, of you know, mm. most of the brands you and I own, know are owned by like three companies, right? Richemont and LVMH and Caring, right? So I, I looked at how that system works. I then started researching how um, the media industry, especially with luxury fashion magazines, and it's just two companies. It's Hearst and Condé Nast, right? And, and I, I really just studied all of that just to understand who I was going to be within that system and whether that system was going to work for me in terms of the relationships I was going to foster. And I was very lucky to have great relationships with Vogue and most doors open to me but if it wasn't going to be just about me, it was going to be about those that were coming up and trying to make sure that they had a fighting chance to work within this industry. And that's what I continue to do is, is um, you know, when someone asks me to do a shoot and it's not for me, I have a database of black women and black men at at any part of the world, from Australia, Lagos, mm. India, if you need a black foot, I, like I, I just recommend, right? So you know, mm. my 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 and my agent Lou, who's amazing, my photo agent has has this whole system of of people that we put forward for specific jobs that wouldn't have a chance. So 
my fostering of relationship is twofold. Yes, it's for me to go to where I need to go, but it's also for me to look at someone with power and say, why aren't, why is there no one black on set? Why is no one, why are the gaffers not black? What's up with the hair and makeup? Mm. What, you know, everything. Like, you know, if I, it's very rare if it's a shoot that I'm doing that it's not immensely diverse and it's not due to lack of talent because everyone I work with is extraordinary at what they do. So why haven't they been in the room before, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So that's also Mm -hmm. a big part of my job is to foster relationships so I can force change in the same way those that came before me, like Edward Enningful and others, have done with the power and influence that they have. Mm, I love that. And, you know, let's let's pivot slightly because there's been something kind of unsaid throughout this entire conversation, which is actually about technology, mm. um, you know, from, you know, YouTube to, you know, virtual shoots to, you know, whatever. Like technology has been something that's been something um, and also, you know, your background in gaming and, mm. you know, Web3, like, so not only being a photographer, right? Like you are multivalent, you are a full expansive human being. So you also founded Culture3, uh, which I'll read here, you know, whose mission is to explain and explore what Web3 means for culture, commerce, and society. Mm. The internet as we know it is being entirely rebuilt by exhibiting great artistry, innovative builders, and meaningful communities, Culture 3 illustrates the impact of these technologies and what's going to happen next. Could you unpack that a bit and why start Culture 3? Because I'm that nerd that has always been (laughs) close to the tip tip of the spear. Like I first bought a JPEG... I bought a JPEG in 2013. There wasn't even any blockchain when I bought a JPEG. Like, I, I, you know, when people say metaverse, I laugh. I'm like, metaverse? Listen, when I was a kid playing Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, that was a metaverse experience for me. I was happier and more comfortable riding my horse in, with my heart and my trinkets than I was in the real world. So no one needs to explain to me that the digital experience is as, as important and valuable um, as 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 um, the analog world. What changes, of course, mm. with block, blockchain, you have irrevocable proof of provenance and a royalty system that can really support artists that I love. But Web3, or as as other people call it, Web3.0, for me, it's, it's not just blockchain. It's everything that Web2 did and mainly failed in doing. So if you look at photography, it was used... As you know, that photography was the the crack cocaine of social media. It was decommodified and 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 made virtually um, valueless, but it was used to build, literally to build Facebook. Like you remember in the early days when you used to do status updates, uh, Facebook <laughs> wasn't growing. You know, it was when the image became what it was, and Facebook and Instagram, you could share your daily life in a really unique way that everything exploded. And, and I, I think Web2 used so many mediums like photography to, to, to have a land grab. And now we're seeing, we're seeing the huge failure of 
the kingdoms of Zuckerberg and now Elon, Elon Musk with Twitter, where we don't own our digital real estate. It can be deleted at any given time. The algorithms decide mm-hmm. what truth truth is. I believe we live already in a post-truth world. And it's incredibly powerful and divisive. And what is coming in Web 3.0 is a way to re recenter and rewrite many of the wrongs that Web 2 has brought into our lives. And um, what I wanted to do is build a, a media business that just told the average consumer what the hell's coming. You know, so if you don't understand what a non-fungible token is, you go on Culture 3 and, you know, we really explain it to you in really simple forms. Um, And then we interview a lot of builders that are in the AI space. And it's not all doom and gloom. It's not all chat GTP is going to end the world. It's not all sort of um, Cyberdyne systems and Terminator. It's more about what can be done in disaster response, right? Um, How is uh, our a big part of the world that is not bank banking. They don't have bank accounts. How How is that going to be changed by blockchain and AI technology? Are we going to be able to have chatbots that can educate people to the same level as people in, in the Western you know, world um, for people that are living um, in refugee camps? You know, getting an Ivy League mm. level of education just to have a, you know, a phone with, with a connected internet device is an extraordinary thing that could change the world because education, you know, creates the next world builders. So I wanted to have a media business that was having that conversation because I couldn't have that. I couldn't see any other media business having that type of conversation. And um, yeah, mm-hmm. it's great. We're, we're doing a lot of really interesting things and trying to make sure that as many people in the world are ready and prepared for the next internet that's actually already in our lives, but many of us don't quite realize it yet. Yeah, and you, I want to double tap. You said, what's coming next? So we exist. It's interesting. I feel like like we almost live in like a post bubble already of like, you know, cryptocurrency and mm. like NFTs. And it's like that, that whole thing exploded. And now we're kind of like at a level set. Mm. But what is coming next and particularly for people of color and how can they take advantage of this technology? Well, you know, I mean, you look at NFTs and human beings are funny because, you know, I always say we're we're getting to a place where we're going to have technology that's powerful enough to change the world. Um, But it's about who wields it, who controls it. And, you know, what's happened Mm -hmm. with a lot, not all of the NFT marketplace, but a lot of it is that a lot of, grifters and and hustlers saw an opportunity to benefit themselves and they used a really incredible technology to do exactly just that and it's ended up um imploding but that doesn't change the fact that um the idea of provenance uh, on the blockchain is incredible i mean if you look mm-hmm. at someone like yourself mm-hmm. or me when we sell our photographs so let's say you know Sotheby sold sold one of my pictures. I know that the buyer, I think, is in Israel somewhere. I don't know. I don't even know their name. <laughs> and they could sell that picture tomorrow for a million dollars. And I would get 100% of zero, right? Whereas if that was um, a digital, so digital and physical um, image that I had mm-hmm. sold through blockchain technology, I could have put a 15% or 10% royalty in perpetuity. 
So at the point of sale on the secondary market, whether the guy cared or wanted to tell me, it wouldn't matter. 10% of the secondary sale price would go straight into my wallet. And that is a very, very attractive thing for artists. There are many great artists who died Mm -hmm. and, and their families are receiving nothing. And they're, they're seeing in auction houses records, 50 million, 30 million. And of course, there's no royalty system that's legally backed that they can get anything from, even if their great-great-grandfather, grandmother is the person that did that painting. Technology changes mm-hmm. all of that. When we had students in trouble in Ukraine, black and brown students, a group of people in the Web3 space got together very quickly because fiat, traditional dollars and cents wasn't going to work when the banks were being bombed and these kids needed to get across mm. the border so what what worked blockchain wallets were set up with people that were helping them on the ground and you know um uh, eth or tezos or bitcoin was sent and these kids were bust over and this happened within 24 hours you know, so there are many use cases wow. and if you know if you, if you think of what this could do for travel and identity having your health records, you know, for people that don't, you know, you and I take our identity for granted, but there are a lot of people who, who, who don't have papers, right? Who, who, mm. There are people who, who the professors won't give them their exam results, right? There's so mm. much of that. And if that's minted on the blockchain, it's, it's there. It's there. And, 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 and for mm. certain people, it could be the difference between um, being able to start a new life and continue to be in the middle of the gates of hell. So these mm. are all the use cases that I'm looking at above and beyond. I, I ain't interested in like pixelated monkeys being the only thing. That's fun, <laughs> you know? But there's some real life use cases that this technology w- will present itself that is borderless and scalable and utterly life-changing. So that, that's just a small example of some of, some of the things that I think that are coming uh, and will come into our lives. And just so listeners know, like you are not just speaking about it, you are about it. So, you know, you work with the Tezos Foundation mm-hmm. um, and you acquired over 2,000 digital artworks, mm-hmm. um, you know, spending $1.2 million, mm-hmm. you know, from an endowment with the Tezos Foundation. So what is the Tezos Foundation? Why is it important? And could you talk a bit about the work that you're doing with them? Well, the, it's, again, I'm, I'm a troublemaker because I, I, I can't, I, I, I hate injustice. So I was there and because of my profile, I was very in the um, Web3 space and I was seeing a lot of money, like change hands with like, mainly North American men (laughs) selling to each Mm. other. And I was like, this is crazy. This is not fair. Like some of the most talented people I was seeing were coming out of um, Iran, uh, Turkey, Argentina, Nigeria, Ghana, um, India. And none of them were getting sales because of course they had a different accent when they're getting on Twitter spaces. They couldn't just speak and all this sort of GM talk and wag me talk. They didn't understand any of that, but their art was extraordinary. And I was like, no, no, no. So I, I, I went to the Tezos Foundation and I said, listen, you know, you're one of the, you know, the, the, the biggest blockchains and 
I think to support the ecosystem that is still young, it would be amazing if we could set up a permanent art collection where a curator, someone like me, would go and not do the traditional kind of hoity-toity, intellectual snobbery-style curation, but just go out there and look at people that have talent but are not being seen and acquire their works. But the important thing is it's permanent, so no one's reselling this stuff. This is going to be a snapshot of the early days of crypto art done in a way that's never been done before because my lens will look further afield than a traditional you know, London or Manhattan-based art history curator, right? So I was mm-hmm. call, calling mm-hmm. up people, you know, finding women in the north of Nigeria that were doing iPhone photography that looked extraordinary. I was finding professors mm. in Argentina that were in their 50s or 60s making incredible art. And none of these people were being celebrated and definitely not a value exchange. And I think that's one of the proudest things about the Permanent Art Collection is it's who it saw and who it supported in the earliest days of the crypto art movement. So, um, yeah, I'm very proud to have been able to support thousands of people that uh, deserve to have a point of view. Yeah, and you have, you know, you've mentioned, you know, this incredible interest in art. I mean, who are some of the people that I think inspired you? I know you have an particular fondness for Henry Osawa Tanner, um, an incredible painter from the 19th century. Um, quick background, born in Philadelphia, um, painter, was went to the um, Pennsylvania Institute of Art, was actually taught and was a protege of Thomas Eakins, um, went over to Paris um, to photograph, or not photograph, to paint. No, no um, cameras. <laughs> and, and ended up um, I think getting second or third place in the salon there in France, which would be our kind of equivalent of, you know, the Venice Biennale. So this is a huge event. So imagine a black painter in France getting second place at this major exhibition in the late 19th century um, <clears throat> and ended up settling in, in, in France. So that's a little bit background on Henry Osawa Tanner. But what... What other art? Like, what are you looking at? What inspires? Well, I mean, we, you can't bring up. You, you, yeah, I mean, you can't bring up Tanner without without um without me getting emotional because. I get it? I, no, but I, look. You know, I, I, the, the um, it's, I, his work repeatedly brings me to tears. Um. The banjo lesson. You know, if you're if you're a person of color and you 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 know the, the thing about Tanner's work is that you 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 don't need anyone to explain to you what you're looking at, right? In fact, I don't want to cry right now, but I'm going to put up. I'm going to actually pull up um, something because if I look at it, it's going to really help me just articulate it. Um, I can't believe you've done your research, my lord. Um, so the thankful <laughs> poor is probably one of my favorite works of art ever, um, and it's it's by Tanner, and um, it's 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 um, of a, a a a black man, older black man, 
and and a young boy at a at a table, a pretty meager looking table, and the title, "The Thankful Poor," to me um, speaks of the African American story with all its heartache, with all the the um, the stories that were taken away from these men and women that had their souls beaten down because of the hue of their skin. And it's all there. And it's this isn't a violent or evocative painting. It's two people at a table just about to break bread. But you know the pain and struggle of their existence by the genius of, Ta- of Tanner's brush. And, and it's... Um, that type of emotion that is the thread of who I'm trying to be as an artist, right? I don't do light. I'm never going to be a comedian, right? <laughs> I look for the, the thing that makes you stop and, 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 and almost fail to draw breath. You're like, <gasps> and you see something that's a mirror of your deepest fears or your greatest hopes. And if I'm not creating that kind of art, then I've got to keep trying to get into that place. And I think that's why when you bring mm. up what I, who I love, it's always people that, 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 that go into a, a place of emotional feeling that the English language hasn't found words for yet. Right. Um, mm. And, and Tana is a great, great, great example. But I mean, I, I think, I think, whether it's music or photography or, I mean, Pablo Neruda is another, is a great poet that I love. And um, Mm -hmm. these people express the things that um, I feel, but haven't found a way to necessarily put it into a medium yet. And they've led Mm -hmm. me to that Mm -hmm. place where the medium has, is, 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 is my, my friend, the camera. And finally I found a tool that can help me tell the world what I've, I've been struggling to say, but I've always felt. So I stand mm. on on the shoulders of many, definitely on the shoulders of many. Mm. You know, I, you know, speaking about emotion and speaking about, you know, even relationship, I can't. I can't. Um, overstate or um, I'm even trying to find the words for it, but (laughs) your wife, Mm. Mm. your wife in just the simple act of loving you Mm. and just the simple act of seeing you provided a gateway for your own path of expression and eventual success. Mm. And I also think about this story of you going to school in England from Nigeria, something that was, you know, on one level, something to be proud of, but in a way placed you in a space 
of an invisible type presence, right? You know, Ralph Ellison, Invisible Man, where you were looked at but not seen. Mm. Could you double tap on the power of love Mm. and the importance of being seen? Yeah, I am. And what that opens up. Yeah, I think we, so many of us um, broken souls, and I am one broken soul. You know, one of the things, one of the things I've learned from Camilla is, is, is that um, there, there, that's, there is um, a certain beauty in accepting that we're all broken, right? It, it, there's no shame in it. And um, I, I, I think when she um, when she really got to know me, I would describe it as somebody who uh, saw a little crack in my rib cage, and she saw the, 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 the glimmer of some kind of light there, so she just ripped open my chest and climbed in and walked through the corridors of my life until she found a room without a key and called from the outside to the little boy that was inside who was sat in a corner shivering. And that boy heard this soft voice and was surprised that this voice from the outside knew his name and he had the keys in his hand and he opened those doors from the inside and she went into the room, sat with him and held him in silence. And it is in that silence of knowing that I was being accepted by somebody who had no good reason to even look for me that allowed me to learn how to love. And that is what this woman has brought into my life. I'm not crying. Um, (laughs) You're crying. (laughs) Brother, when, when did you know? When did you know it was her? It was in the quiet moments when you're lying with somebody and what's left unsaid completes what was always what 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 you've already been brave enough to share it was in the in the lack of need to project men are programmed to project that we have all the answers and i didn't feel i needed to i was very comfortable telling her that i didn't have all the answers and i was scared and unsure And I didn't know how to take a bite out of life without pretending Mm. to know. And I think when, when you meet someone and you both feel each other's scars, like Braille, then you may be onto to the ability to waltz through life together. And that, that was, that was, that is our story, you know? Um, And um, I can't tell you 
the power of releasing my inner sort of fears in this gentle, non-judgmental way that makes me this beast of creativity and intentionality. It all comes from gentle acceptance by somebody who sees your imperfections and helps you mold them into building blocks rather than a cage. Mm. Well, I'm looking forward to... By the way, just just so you know about dyslexic people, just so you know, like the the, the thing about a lot of... I mean, I need to have multiple diagnoses of how my mind works, but I speak (laughs) quite... I, I speak quite... I've been told I speak quite poetically... And I'm always fascinated by this because I I cannot write at one sentence. I write like a seven-year-old. But the way my mind is programmed is that it's directly connected to my heart. So the words pour out like a broken tap if I'm talking about something that I care about. And I wish I wish it could become my pen because I've become a writer, but you know, it's, it's really when I, even now, like I, I don't plan any, when I'm interviewed, I never plan what I'm going to say. It just comes out. And it's, it's fascinating how that, that, that kind of works for different people. It's so funny. I was literally about to say like, well, brother, I'm looking forward to the book of poetry coming up. <laughs> um, but see, that's where, that's where transcription services and yes. a little bit of AI might be of assistance. Yeah. Um, well, Misan, this has been an absolutely incredible time um, getting to know you a bit better and sharing your story. Before I ask my last couple of questions, yeah. um, I also just want to take this moment to acknowledge you, um, acknowledge the incredible not only work, right? Like the actual work that you've put into your craft and then letting letting your essence like flow through it and also the transmutation of the trauma, right? The chemo process, the alchemy um, that you engaged in the transference or the transmutation of that. But then also your real pure desire and heart in although you pierced right in seemingly unpenetrable space you let that piercing be an opening up right Mm. it wasn't just you're not making it just wide enough for you to get through you're actually opening the fabric you're ripping it apart and saying Mm. hey i'm bringing all of these people with me and for that like i just find you know, incredibly admirable. Um, it makes us of one heart and one mind for sure. You know, Thank I think you. it's like, yes, a thing can happen. The second question is, what will you do with it? And what well, you've been well, doing? Well, I mean, Dario, well, one admirable. thing, one, one thing I'll add to that is, yeah, apart from the activism, the activism side, the other thing that I'm growing to do is just not be afraid to, to be part of the status, um, to, to not kind of, follow what all my cool friends are doing or all my influential friends or all my film and fashion friends and you know I remember when I earlier last year or was it this year I can't even remember I called out Balenciaga and it was really interesting because 
um, I was one of the only people um, that, like, overtly called that shit out, you know? And I had so many texts from friends saying, man, that's one of the hottest brands in the world. I was like, dude, they have a picture of a child face down with champagne glasses around. We're like, what, what are you talking about? Like, no. I'm a photographer. I understand like mood boards and how many meetings and how many adults are going to have to look to that shit. And that's just not acceptable to me. I don't give a fuck whether I never work in fashion again. I genuinely don't give I can't see that and say nothing. And and it was really mm. interesting because I, 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 I messaged a lot of my friends um, in the industry and they just didn't, you know, they couldn't, even if they felt it was horrific, they couldn't bring it upon themselves to actually make a statement about it. And I'm not even angry with them because I guess people got children to feed and mortgages to pay. But my point is, um, if I didn't do that, then I would be lying to myself because I saw it and I felt what I needed to say, right? Um, and I put mm. it out there because I felt it was wrong. And I think how industries change is when those that have equity in, in the industry say, we will not accept this. You know, if people were comfortable with it only being black, um, white photographers, then you and I wouldn't exist as we are today. Somebody stepped outside of their comfort zone to give us a shot. So why, why shouldn't I speak of something that I just think is absolutely abhorrent for such a powerful brand to do and and if others are willing to look away for their own reasons then good on them but i'm not right and i think enough mm. people saw i mean a lot of people saw that i wasn't and i think it was a good thing that somebody in the fashion industry like me was willing to say that this is bs mm. 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 um i i'm 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 like <laughs> having a moment because now I want to ask like 18 more questions, but I will stop myself. Misan, where can people connect with you? How can they see this incredible gallery of art that you've created for the Tezos Foundation? We will put I the mean, links in the show notes for yeah, sure. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, the easiest way is to follow my my socials. Instagram um, is much more of my. Um, I guess fashion film and activism. Twitter is more AI, culture three, and and um, blockchain. Um, but all of these are parts of me. Um, and just get in touch, you know, get in, in get in the DMs. I check every DM I get, and um, let's just keep swimming upstream together. You know, let's not um, be afraid to force change in whatever industry that we choose. We are passionate for change in. Amazing. And what's the URL for the Tezos uh, collection? So the Tezos uh, collection is, if you, go, if you go to the Tezos Foundation website, if you just Google Tezos Foundation, it will be, it will be a link within that website. Okay. Amazing. Well, Misan, my man, here is my last and final question. <laughs> With everything at your behest... What is the world you imagine for the future? The world I imagine for the future is a world where our children do not inherit our traumas. That's it. If our children do not inherit our traumas, 
then they are able to bring light into their existence in a way that many of us find impossible due to the demons that we are born with to fight with for our known lives. So as a father, as a teacher, as an activist, my thing is to look to the youth and those that are not my children, but that are young and have young minds, to make sure they have the tools to unlearn the untruths they've been taught about our collective past, whether it's about what America is, who the First Nation people were, the business of institutionalized transatlantic slavery, and of course, the empire and British colonial systems that have so much to do with many of the troubles of the world today. Many young people don't know what the Balfour Agreement was, which has shaped the Israeli and Palestinian conflicts. Many people don't know what the Sykes-Picot Agreement was, which is a Frenchman and an Englishman drawing the map of the Middle East. Many people don't understand the history of slavery itself and how it has been in, in many cultures for as long as history books have existed. So, I hope that we have a future where we educate ourselves on the sins of our past so we can fight for a better present to carve out a future that's devoid of all the traumas that our children have inherited for generations. And my weapon of choice is my art and the voice that lives within my art. Well, brother, that is a wonderful place to end. <laughs> <laughs> that is all of the things. Misan, you are a, a nerd <laughs> and a scholar. And what, a, what an amazing conversation. Brother, I cannot wait until we have the opportunity to meet face to face um, and to break bread. It will be a joyous, joyous occasion. Absolutely. I'm going to holler as soon as I come stay to New York, man. Thank you for having me. Oh, please. Well, I don't know about you, but the story of Misan's wife gifting him that camera nearly had me in tears. Ah, to be loved and seen. What stood out to you? Let us know your thoughts over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. We obviously love comments and cannot wait to hear what you have to say about this special episode. Leave us a review over on Apple Podcast and be sure to check out this conversation and others at blackimagination.com. Misan's story is a testament to the age-old adage, it's never too late to do what you love to do. So, what do you love? Why not just do it? Stay curious and keep dreaming. Dreaming.